Good morning. I'm so blessed and honored to be with you again. I ha couldn't help but think that uh, the Lord may be saying to me that you ought not to come back to Madison. Every time I come, there seems to be some kind of crisis that means I can't see you face to face. So um, I hope I'm not taking that personally. I hope that's uh, the Lord saying, beyond whatever happens in your culture, I want you to be together. I uh, drove down Hoy Road yesterday, and all those waves of, of nostalgia and homesickness uh, came back. Uh, again, I'm so grateful for the years, 15 plus years, that uh, we as a, a Uri family spent here in Madison. And again, so grateful for what the Lord's doing in this church through your marvelous pastoral staff and through you, the, the people of God. I have to confess, I think I only have one point for today. And all of you said, hallelujah, amen, how short that's going to be. But I'd like to take a, a point that I think is very important for any crisis time, probably any time in life. But for me, I keep coming back here in the middle of uh, life's crises, uh, cultural crises, um, personal things in my life where I thought, Lord, I, I just can't think straight. There's so much happening, so many things flying around me that I'm not quite sure where, where to go, what to do. I want to ask your forgiveness, too, because some of you know I love Israel, I love the geography there, the archaeology there, and so I'm going to be talking about some, some place names that may not be familiar to you, but I want to paint a picture of how Jesus, what he focuses on in the middle of crises. Um, reading this morning in my own devotion time, I came across that, par that chapter in Matthew, chapter 4, that paragraph that, sort of, that leads us to the place I want to preach from. It's in Matthew 4. It's where Jesus begins his ministry. And then we have, interestingly, a, a bunch of place names in Galilee. So geography and theology for Jesus go together. He's fulfilling promises, the promises of, of, the, of the Scripture, but he's also saying to something to us by where he goes, where he always goes. Listen to these words. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are two tribal border units. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if you take that beginning paragraph of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee and go to chapter 16, you find that Jesus is, in a sense, telling us by his placements something about his entrance into chaos, into cultural demise, into a place of violence and political upheaval. He knows exactly what we face. I wish we had time to go through leading you up to this chapter because Jesus confronts all kinds of chaotic crisis issues, including raising somebody from the dead. But we come to this paragraph, chapter 16, beginning at verse 13, and here again, the place names. Something about this where Jesus is saying, this is where I always come, and this is what I always say to you in the midst of whatever crisis you face. Verse 13 of 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who 
do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. In Greek, that's Petros, which means rock. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'm always amazed by these, these red words in my Bible that has Jesus' words in red, because I have to remind myself that if you were to take the red letters and put them in the Old Testament, you'd have the same kind of powerful reality, that God is speaking to his people. The Holy One is revealing himself to those who are a lot like us. Jesus is not playing games. He's not talking in nice little story forms. Every word of Jesus is a revelation of reality. The Holy One is revealing his nature, his purpose, his desire for every single human being. Sometimes I make Jesus too small. I make discipleship too small. I, I, I try to locate it, and the Lord always blows my mind. He's speaking to you and me. Who do you say that I am, he says to us. Now, why did I go there? And here's a, going to be a bit of that stuff about places, but I, I think it's very important. If you take a map, usually in the back of your Bible, and begin to outline these places, you'll see that Jesus has just come to where he's speaking here at this mountain with his disciples. He has just come from the coast, a Gentile city. The only time Jesus ever goes to what we call Syrophoenicia, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. He's just come from a pagan town, a pagan city, right to Mount Hermon. And if you look, you find this sort of triangle of, of paganism. The Lord is touching pagan sites where they don't believe in the true God. They don't know the true God. And he's saying something about who he is in the middle of those who don't know who he is or don't want to know who he is, which may be the world in which you live. I'm intrigued. It says that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which means it's more than the city. It's, it's an area. We don't know how big, but it's a region. So I began to think months ago, wait a minute, Lord, what should I see here about where you come, where you want to show up when your disciples, like me, don't know what to think, don't know how to make a change? What, what do we do in this culture that's falling apart, where even the people who claim they know God don't know God, and those who are in politics are taxing us to death, violently oppressing us, don't care about our race? What do we do? I'm intrigued. Jesus begins what, where you and I probably think is a nice idyllic setting, Capernaum. I think it was more chaotic than you think. But he starts there, and he begins to walk up, and it's almost all uphill, about 50 miles from Capernaum to this mountain, Mount Hermon, as we call it. Look at the Gospel of Matthew sometime. And just, just list for yourselves the, the mountains where Jesus makes major theological statements. He was tempted on a mountain. We all know he began to speak, preach on a mountain. Our entire ethic has been formed by that one sermon on the mountain. He is transfigured on a mountain. He's crucified, we know, at least on a hill, 
not a mountain, but a high place. And when he gives his great commission, he's on a mountain. So Matthew begins the book and ends the book, and in the middle now, there's a mountain, which means God is revealing himself. He's not just a, going to a geographical place. God speaks to us on mountains. Think about the Old Testament. So you and I should be poised. Wait a minute. This is not just some discipleship trip. This is a revelation of the Holy One to us, all of us. Now, what is he communicating? Barry's been with me, actually, on a trip to Israel, and, and some of you may have been yourself. Uh, Charlie Artman is another one who's gone. Um, I'd like to take all of you with me sometime. But anyway, we've been to this place, and I, I thought often, what is Jesus communicating at the, at the, at the mountain? Which they're not, they're not on it. They're at the base of it, I believe, a region around this mountain. And he's saying, well, what, what do you have here? You might not know this, but out of that mountain comes the only living water in all of Israel. Millions of gallons of water every hour flow out of the base of Mount Hermon. The only source of fresh water in Israel, at least in their day. He's saying, if you want to know who I am, I'm the one who makes mountains. I reveal myself on mountains, and I am your life. I'm the li if you want any freshness, any life, it comes from me. Then I thought, wait a minute. If he's gone back as far as creation and the nature of the one who provides life, maybe he's telling his disciples, I want you to understand that I'm the same as when you first met me as God in the Old Testament. Now, this is a little weird, but hang with me. There's a town about three miles from Caesarea Philippi. In the Old Testament, it's the word Laish. And that town is the first town where Abraham and Sarah passed before they came into Israel. They passed a town. That's an interesting story. A few years ago, a, an archaeology student was walking away from this huge mound of dirt with his archaeological uh, teacher, and he looked back. It was the evening time. He looked back, and in the mound, he thought he saw sort of a structure, something that looked rounded. And he looked at the expert, and he said, look back with me. Does that look to you like it's a structure that's made by a human being? And his teacher said, I think it is. And as they began to uncover the next day and beyond, they found it was a huge gate, a 4,000-year-old gate, a gate that was most likely there when Abraham and Sarah either walked into town or at least walked past that gate. It's the only thing like that we have in our own Christian history to say, did Abraham and Sarah really walk down any place that we can point out in Israel? It, the, it's the oldest indication of God's promise and fulfillment in all of Israel. And the Lord says, I want to take you very close to that place. I began to promise who I was to you there, and my promises still are effective today. I need people to trust me like Abraham and Sarah did. And their life was totally chaos-filled. They said, we'll follow you wherever you take us. We'll do whatever you want us to do. And from that family, all of us are children of faith who believe in Jesus. I wonder if the Lord didn't. I think he knew his men. They were well-trained biblically. They knew their history. They understood God's past. I wonder if, even without saying it to them, in this region, he's saying, I have just one basic point I want you to focus on. Who am I to you? And this question continues. 
this is a little odd, but remember when Joshua was asked to take over the land of Israel, and God said, this is given to you. The Lord, the Lord said, I want you to take it all over. Leave no part of it unconquered. If you, do, if you don't conquer all of it, that pagan religion is going to affect my people and pull you away from me. But Joshua did not do it in three areas. And one of the areas where he did not complete that task was the north. I think it's because he was afraid. There were a lot of weird, strange religious stuff and political stuff and powerful kings up in the north. And so there's a town named Baal Hermon. You can find it in, jo in jo Joshua 13. And they did not defeat that city. And from that time until Jesus' day, there's been a consistent, there was a consistent influence of paganism which shows in Judges 18. You remember that interesting story where the, the tribe of Dan was sort of displeased with what God had given to them over on the, on the west coast? And so they went north, and on the way north, they picked up a man and said, we want you to be our priest, which is always interesting in the Old Testament. Not the priest that God wants. We want you to be our priest. And it was Moses' grandson, for a crying out loud. And they take him, and they begin to start sort of a weird religious mix up north in Dan, which, by the way, is the very place where the Mount of Hermon is and where Jesus takes these guys for their retreat. I know these fellows remembered that. It was a heart problem in Israel that was never taken care of. And they never knew peace after that move. How about Solomon's progeny? Jeroboam, in the book of 1 Kings, he says, I'm going to go up to Dan and I'm going to build another altar. Oh, you know, it's too difficult to get to Jerusalem where God wants us to worship. We'll just make it easy access. We'll have one up in the north and one down here, you know, like Bethel, which is just north of Jerusalem. I think what we find here is, is a radical syncretism, saying, well, let's just mix religions. We don't need this straight-shooting moral law. Let's just mix some good things and some other things we like in other religions. And if you can do that, then you can, everybody will be happy. And that, of course, produced 200-plus years of chaos, violent chaos. Sexual immorality was rampant. Radical financial difficulty because people, the people of God said, no, we're going to mix you with other things. We don't want that, that distinct line of obedience. We want to worship you the way we want to worship you. We'll make you in our own image. You can still see the very square in the ground where Jeroboam built his first altar in Dan. Now it's interesting. Let's just jump 900 years. Lots more to talk about. Let's jump about a millennia. Jesus is now here. But do you know what's happening in this region before Jesus comes with his disciples? Herod, whom you all know, this great builder, built a city and he called it Panyas, after the god Pan. And if you know anything about Pan, you know that this is a perverted God whose entire being is given toward all kinds of perverted kinds of things. And so Herod builds a, an altar to Pan. And his son, Philip, that, that one that Jesus calls Fox, that fox up in Galilee, he builds a temple to Caesar. So you're mixing religion and the government. Now all of those things, that's just a few things. If you were to take all those chaotic, unbiblical, warped, sick human constructions 
I think Jesus is saying to his disciples, before I do one more thing toward going to the cross, I need you to tell me, no, I need you to understand who I am. Now, I've been in, around theology in the church for a long time. <laughs> but I must confess to you, these last few weeks, especially the last couple of weeks, have been very disconcerting for me. All my outlines don't seem to work. They don't seem to fix, put things in order. I, I don't know quite what to think. I don't know how to respond. I don't know what's right. I don't know who's right completely. And so Jesus keeps saying to me as I read and as I pray and as I listen to other people who are wiser than me, he keeps saying, Bill, who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Don't follow anybody else, any other political agenda. Who am I to you? It's interesting. I read in chapter 4 that phrase, the way of the sea. Do you know what that means? It means that anybody who comes into Israel comes this way. I checked one day. Well, one month. I studied the entire Bible. I counted 14 different tyrants going north to south, south to north, on this same road. And Jesus says, well, when I come to start my ministry, from Nazareth to Capernaum, I'm going to put my center of, of ministry right in the middle of that road. You're going to come right past me, you tyrants. I'm the king of the world. I'm the king of kings. And I put my authority right in the middle of all of your political power, all of your violent attacks. I'm going to plant myself in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm the light which has come to your darkness. Now, you may be way ahead of me, but I'm convinced that that's not where I want to go for a retreat with Jesus. I don't like going to discomforting places. <laughs> I'm not sure what you would call the most evil place in Mississippi. There probably is not an evil place. Uh, okay, so let's go to another state. Let's say Jesus says, let's go to a retreat, but I want to take you to Las Vegas, to one of the worst places there. I'm afraid to mention any place in America. Just think of an evil place and think to yourself, would you like it if Jesus said, you know, I want to take you to the epicenter of a coronavirus to have a retreat with me. That's where I want to talk to you about who I am. That's exactly what's happening here. He takes his disciples in a very chaotic time in their lives, and by the way, he's going to a cross in a few chapters, and he says, just one thing matters more than anything else. Who do you say that I am? Now, these disciples are interesting to me. All of them were segregationists. All of them were trained racists. Their daddies taught them from early on, if the shadow of a Roman crosses your body, you're unclean for seven days. They knew what it was to live lives of separation, barriers of every kind. Some of them were wealthy, some were very poor. You can imagine there was a lot of debate about that among the 12. One of them was a terrorist. One of them was an Antifa member in the middle of that discipleship group. And all of them were slow learners. My wife says to me, Bill, that's the thing you must learn about being a male. You're just a dense human being. You don't get it at all. These guys did not get it. Just look, just look around this, this paragraph where Jesus takes his disciples and says to them, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter gives this remarkable answer. 
that is helped by God himself. But before that, look around and Jesus says, guys, don't you know I can provide everything you need? One day he feeds 15,000 people and they take what? 12, 12 baskets of leftovers. Soon a day later, a couple days later, he, he feeds 12,000 people and they pick up seven baskets of leftovers. They get into a boat, the 13 men, 12 and Jesus, and they're, about to cro- they're crossing the, the Sea of Galilee and they have one loaf, one loaf between 13 men. And their concern is, what are we going to do about lunch? Who's got lunch? And Jesus says in the middle of chapter 16, fellas, do you not remember who I am? Why, why, are, you, why are you fighting me all the time? Why, where is your faith? Don't you know there's a history of, of promise and provision just like Israel's was? They missed me. You can't miss me. It's your choice. I don't want you to miss me. I have given you myself. I'm the water of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the creator. I'm the king. There is nothing that can come against me, but you insist on still thinking about life from your, your small perspective. I'm intrigued. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. And every time I read that verse, I think he's looking right at me especially when America's in chaos. Bill, how much longer do I have to be with you? How many more miracles? How many more blessings? How many more incredible church services? How many more great staffs? How many more great family members? How how many more until you believe who I am? They didn't believe. I know it's a shocking context, but Jesus always shocks us. Maybe he's allowed some of this. He hasn't done it, but he's allowed it to shock us back into reality. Who is he to us? Maybe in your home, not being in church, maybe being, going to church is confusing sometimes. Maybe you think it's about being cultural or being nice, or, but now it just, we've got to say, what do I believe? So in a world like the first century where you've got multiple layers of evil, you don't, we don't even know what really where evil starts in our culture. Is it the government? Is it the banking system? Is it, what is it? Well, the Lord says, who am I to you? The demonic world, the idolatrous world, the pagan world, the philosophical world, the socially striated world, all those worlds. Gee, I think Jesus says, I'm going to take you to the center of the worst place in Israel and ask you, who am I to you? It's terrifying. Everything's terrifying. If you're awake, if you're alive, I've heard people who have been Christians for decades say, I have no idea what's next, wringing their hands. Wait a minute, Jesus says. Who am I to you? Tell me again, who am I? Now, I wonder if you and I realize that Jesus doesn't stop this little outline of history and geography and all that stuff which I believe is even more intense than I could ever outline for you, by this phrase, the gates of Hades. Because when it comes right down to it, the last fear for every one of us, maybe the deepest fear, is death. Did you know there's a place you can look at, even still, which is a huge hole in the bottom of Mount Hermon, which is the back of a pagan temple. The temple's all gone, and they call that place the gates of hell. The gates of death, with all their mythic weird stuff about boats and paying prices and getting to... It's ridiculous, but Jesus says to them, 
you're my church. The only time Matthew uses that word, you're my church, and I want my church to be in the front, in the face of that gate, the gates of hell, which is about the worst you can think of. You mean, Lord, you're the Lord of creation, you're the Lord of kings, you're the Lord of over chaos, you're, Lord over, you're the Lord over death? And Jesus says, yes. Here, at the entrance to hell, I stand as the Lord of life. It's interesting how in life we can be so at ease with how things are going because life's pretty good, life's okay, but all of a sudden something shocks us into reality, like a doctor's statement about our health or someone in our family's situation, and all of a sudden life and death gets very clear. Or maybe a look at the evening news. Life and death gets very clear. Four times last week, because of where I was preaching in Atlanta, I passed the Wendy's that was scorched by all that chaos. Saw people moving around in large circles, angry and ready for something else to break out. And I thought, Jesus, what can can I do? What, What can I offer? All these years of training, all these years of prayer and quiet time and trying to obey you, what could, what can I do? And in my van, the Lord was saying, Bill, I want you to understand who I am. Believe in me. I'll tell you what to do, but don't stop trusting in me. I'm the creator. I'm the Lord of life. I'm the God of promises. I'm the God who's the only God. I'm the only one who loves you, the only one who forgives you, the only one who saves you. I'm God over politics. I can't be co-opted by any other system, whether it's your mind or your economics, whatever you say, I am not going to be co-opted. I won't share my glory with anything, anyone else. And I am the God of the downtrodden. I'm the God of those who no one else cares about. In the shadow of death, do you know in Galilee, if you wanted to go to the worst part of Israel, it was Galilee. I don't know what you think about America, but the worst place in America, compare it to Galilee. Everyone there was viewed as not smart, not elite, not cool. Jesus came from probably the smallest town in the worst place of Israel, Nazareth. That's where our Savior came from. And he says to his own, are you going to follow anybody else but me? Then have your own life and your own chaos. I'm the only one who's light in the middle of darkness. Do you believe that? I don't know where we've gone. I don't know where we're going, but I do know this. Jesus never changes. And I have a feeling, I think the word is disequilibration. He, he, he shook his disciples up to say, wait a minute, you've been hearing what I've said, you've watched my miracles, but you really don't know who I am. And you can't understand the cross if you don't know who I am. Who am I to you? And Peter says, you're the son of man. Now, we don't have time today to talk about that, but that's a huge theme in Scripture. Read the book of Ezekiel sometime. That's the only phrase Ezekiel uses for himself, son of man. That means Jesus is a human being. But the other writers talk about a son of man like Daniel, who's the divine son of man. So you've got Jesus who's human and divine. He He brings all of heaven in himself to all of earth where you and I live in dust and dirt and confusion. He ties those two worlds together in himself. 
Yes, Peter, I am the Son of Man. But you didn't learn that by yourself. My father told you because the next thing Peter does is he, he totally disagrees with where Jesus is going. Peter says, you can't go to a cross. And Jesus says, then you think like the devil. You think like my enemy. You think like the world. If you want to know who I am, I am the Son of Man and I've come to die. It's intriguing to me when Jesus, in the middle of chaos, is saying, I'm going to tell you again, this is the only way to think in a world that's spinning out of control. Something I, I came across, I'd say about, oh, a year and a half ago. And it's a new thought to me, and it may not be the right perspective, but it helps me. I was looking at this phrase, on this rock. You know all the debates about that. Jesus says to, to Peter, on this rock, meaning it's you, Peter, you're a man. We have a whole denomination that's focused on the the rock-like figure of Peter. Maybe. I don't think so, but it could be. Others say, well, it's the confession. You're the son of man. Well, maybe. That's a good confession to have about Jesus. But then I went back and just did a little research on the language, and I, I thought, wait a minute. This word on, that's one translation, but there's another translation. On this rock or against this rock. Now, what if it's that that Jesus is saying? Not on this rock, but against this rock. My church will not be built on a rock, but against what rock? The rock where the gates of Hades are. Maybe Jesus is saying, I want you to be in a mode where you're understanding who I am and you're entering into everyone's chaos, where I have come. If you want to know who I am, that's why I came from heaven, to enter into all of your chaos. And if you are my church, you will enter into the chaos with my life, against that rock, against that mountain, whatever the mountain may seem like. I want people who believe who I am and why I've come. There are many reasons why I'm a Methodist, a Wesleyan, but one of the main reasons I am is because there was a man and women too, men and women who were filled with the Spirit who said, we have been given one purpose in our culture, and that is to go to those who have nothing. And so, much against all of his background and all of his pomposity, John Wesley says, one day, he wrote in his journal, I submitted to be more vile, which means I stepped out of my life's church and I went to people who stunk and were drunk and had no, no way to, where to go, and I said, I want to show you Jesus. I want to offer you Christ. He says, I submitted to be more vile on that day. I'm not sure where you're in that intersecting with culture. I'm not sure who you know. But I know enough about this part of Mississippi to know there are a lot of people with some very deep needs. And I want to say to you, yes, we are building all of our faith upon a rock that never changed. I understand that. But I wonder if Jesus says, will somebody join me in diving into hell? Diving into chaos? I want to go, and the only place I can, only way I can go is if my church will confront hell, whatever that means. I uh, have a, I have a favorite uh, missionary, and I love his name. His name is C.T. Studd. What a great name! I wish my name was C.T. Studd. That would be great. Um, but one of his most famous lines I have written in my, my Bible, almost every Bible I've ever owned, 
uh, as far as I can remember. And he said this. He said, some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop about a yard from hell. And ever since I read that sentence when I was a young, young teenage Christian, I thought, Jesus, I don't know fully what that means, but it sounds right to me. It sounds like you. Yard from hell. That's where our Savior says, no, you can come to me. I offer myself to you. And against that rock, whatever the rock is, whatever that horrific mountain looks like to you or me, Jesus says, and how about you? Do you want to run away out of fear? Do you want to say it doesn't matter? It doesn't, I don't see it. It's not close, so I don't care. Or maybe the Lord can say to your church, to my church, to you, to me, I want you to tell me again, Jesus says, who am I to you? Why have I come? Have I come so that you can just have a nice little experience in a nice, beautiful church? Or do I want to turn you outside of this building, interestingly, that's empty this morning? I want you to live outside, go outside to those who are vile, just like me. I think it takes a disciple a long time to hear Jesus. I think we have to wake up sometimes and say, Lord, I, I, I've seen my life full of miracles. You've provided, you've given, you're the creator, you've made, you've redeemed me. But I really don't know why I'm here. I know who you are, but if you are who you are, then I should be acting like you. It's interesting. I believe the way to the cross for the disciples really begins here. Because Jesus starts to use some very, very hard language, which we can't talk about this morning. But you know where it is. He says, you know, if you don't take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, you can't be one of mine. You don't know who I am. You think like the devil. If you want to think like me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow me where? Well, follow me to the gates of hell. Follow me wherever I'm leading my people, my church my called-out ones who look a lot like me. Against this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. I know many of you. I wish I knew all of you. I love you. I love most all of your pastoral staff. I've known them for many years. But I'm convinced this church is a unique church in Mississippi. There's something happening here that doesn't happen in many churches. You are surfeited in truth. You can trust everything that comes out of the mouths of those who lead you because they love and know Jesus. But if you and I are in our homes without saying to Jesus, all right, as things begin to change, you shunt me, you send me, you move me, you do whatever you want. If we're not willing to say that, this church, any church like that will never be what Jesus wants us to be. I told you I raised, we raised our family just a couple of miles from here. <laughs> it's interesting, that house is totally gone now, and a beautiful mansion is on top of that land. So it's finally where it should be. It was, it was a little shack when we were there. But my kids uh, had to listen to my attempts at uh, quiet time <laughs> twice a day, breakfast and supper, every day for years. Those poor kids, we hammered them hard. And uh, the only morning I remember where I felt like anything I said made sense, made sense was this. On Hoy Road, 
I said to my kids, we're talking about Abraham and Sarah. I said, you know, the, the answer to all of life is, if you hear his voice and you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, I trust you, what he'll do is this, I said to them. He will put you on Hoy Road and tell you to start walking and don't stop until he says stop. And you know, I don't know if they, yeah, I, they heard it. But it's as, all, as if the Holy Spirit came upon the entire family moment. And we all said, that's right. Not a nice little road where I live. This is the road where Jesus prepares me to get to the place where I can say, Lord, you tell me where to stop. I will go anywhere you want me to go. Because I'm not here for myself. I'm your called out ones to be, one to be like you. I know who you are. And you can make me like you for the sake of the world. We're all discomforted. Nobody knows what's going on. It's a really good time to say, Jesus, tell me again who you are. And I promise you, I will give everything I am to identify my life with you. Marvelous Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, it may be easier to preach than it is to take one step in obedience. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we finish this sharing time in the Word, that you would enable every one of us to hear your voice. You're the one who's asking every heart, who do you say that I am? And if we know the truth, not just words, but the truth, then the next response is, Lord, where? And you say, well, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and step with me. Follow me. I'll show you. I'll always be there in front of you. I'll always enable. I'll always provide. I'm always the same. But follow me. Would you, Lord, fill this Madison church with your glory and your presence so that everyone, every single person will say yes to you? We love you. Thank you for taking us out of our comfort zone enough to think about deeper things that maybe we don't think about often, but we need this. Thank you for a retreat with you. Now transform us and make us like you for the sake of those you love in the world, we pray in your precious name. Amen.